Well, good morning. We are continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts. So if you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 18. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We're going to be looking at Acts 18, 19, 20, and 21. So I hope you had a big brunch. Um, well, in, in the 1930s, there was a man named Nordman who really thought his invention changed the world, or at least would change the world. Uh, he, he invented what was then called the Nordman Mark 15 bomb sight. So, so if you can imagine, especially during uh, about to be World War II, dropping a bomb was not very precise, right? Airplanes go fast. Getting a particular, hitting a particular target was complicated. And so America spent a lot of money so that they could, with precision, take out targets during World War II. Just to kind of put this into perspective, uh, they spent in 1940 dollars, 1.5, America did, 1.5 billion dollars on this bomb site. The Manhattan Project that produced the atomic bomb, 3 billion. Right? We spent $1.5 billion to produce a bomb site because we knew that if we could hit particular you know, sites, that the war would be over. Now, Nordman was actually a Christian, and so he thought this would actually be, is in line with my Christian convictions that I want to lower the casualties by making bombing very, very precise. But see, there was a problem. Though we spent $1.5 billion and bought 55,000 of these and put them in all these bombers, they didn't really work. And they didn't really change the war. Isn't that how we live our lives? There's a technology that kind of rises to the surface. We get all excited and we think that's going to change the world. We put our hopes and dreams in those things. And that so often they don't. But, but, but when you really think about, when you look at history... Some of the biggest ways in which the world did change wasn't because of a bomb site or even through a sword. It's through words, isn't it? I mean, just think about the most powerful times and moments in history that really did kind of frame the world. It was all through the power of the pen. I mean, just think of Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, his power isn't how he could organize people, really. His power was in his words. Martin Luther King Jr. was the most dangerous when you gave him a mic and an audience. That's how he would mobilize people. But, but it's not just the message, all right? We need the message, but, but we need more than just the message. Uh, you know, the, the ancients knew this as it relates to the power of words. And so people like Aristotle believed that you needed actually three things in order to effectively communicate. You needed logos, which is the words, the message. You needed pathos, which is the, the passions, the emotions. But you also needed ethos, which was you needed to, as you were communicating, you needed to actually embody the message that you were communicating. And you needed all three things in order to effectively communicate. And so we've all heard those messages of, uh, of men and women who've, who've said true things with passion, but they lacked credibility. 
and so you don't believe them, and they didn't change the world. Martin Luther King Jr., well, he didn't just uh, sort of speak with passion. He didn't just have true words. He actually embodied the message. He himself had been mistreated. He himself suffered much, and so he was credible. The message and the man need to go together. Or to put it a different way, the wisdom and the woman need to go together. We need credibility and a message. Now, for the Christian gospel, the Christian gospel really is about a suffering Savior. It's about a sacrificial Savior. That is the content of our message. So if you want to make that message credible, and if you want to change the world by that credible message, well, we must also embody that message. And that really is the point of these four chapters that we're going to look through this morning. That God's word plus sacrificial servants, it changes the world. We're going to see how it changes the world in different ways throughout these four chapters, but that's the big idea that you should see behind me, which is God's word through sacrificial servants changes the world. Now, last week, we ended in chapter 17. And in chapter 18, halfway through chapter 18, just to kind of get our bearings straight, we are ending the second missionary journey of Paul. And then at the end of chapter 18 is the third missionary journey of Paul. Chapter 18 is sort of like an um, introduction to this next section, the, the third missionary journey of Paul. And we learn, starting in chapter 18, I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to read all of these sections. We'll, we'll read maybe half of it by the morning's end. But chapter 18 begins with Paul actually being quite discouraged. In chapter 18, we meet these people like Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, and he continues to minister in Corinth And yet, like time and time again, as he's ministering, as he's teaching, as he's telling people about Jesus to both Jew and Greek, people revile him. And he is discouraged. And it makes sense. I mean, even when you think about his time in Athens, right? This great debate that he had, this great message that he preached. And yet you get to the end of Athens in chapter 17, and it just says a handful of men believed and then two prominent people. I mean, that's not great fruitfulness. I mean, Paul could count his fruitfulness on maybe his hand and toes, And so Paul is discouraged, and he's thinking about kind of packing it in, leaving Corinth, stopping, maybe going on to the next city. But then something amazing happens. Look at verse 9 of chapter 18. God himself comes to Paul in a vision. Verse 9, God says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. And then we learn that Paul stayed another year and six months teaching God's word among them. God's word of promise here was all that Paul needed in order for him to stay rooted in Corinth. 
Now, this is what happens when sort of discouragement comes, doesn't it, right? We, we sort of seize up. When discouragement and fear comes, we, we, we kind of shrink back. We, we stop talking. We start, stop pushing forward. And that's what was going on with Paul. I mean, we think of Paul as this super saint, right? That, that he was impervious to, to any sort of sinfulness. And yet Paul was just a man as well who would get discouraged from time to time, who would look at his labor, his day in and day out, preaching the gospel, and would consistently sometimes get discouraged. And he too needed a a vision. He needed God's word of promise. And he had it. Now, there is a particularity to the promise that's just for Paul, and that was that that God says, uh, you're not going to get harmed here in Corinth, so keep on preaching. Now, that's not for us. But there is one for us, isn't there? And it's that God is with Paul, just like God is with us. You see, fear and his brother worry, they really are powerful foes. I mean, my guess is with the advent of 24-hour news cycles and all the technological advances... I mean, we're more fearful than probably previous generations. And when you think about it, our society is actually incentivized to create more fear within us. Think about how many goods are sold to us to kind of stoke fear. Like, you better buy this good because if you don't, this bad thing could happen. I mean, our society incentivizes fear in order for them to sell us goods. And yet... There's a theological promise here, a promise of presence that can be so helpful even for the most timid among us, even the the most fearful among us, even the most worried and anxious. It's the promise that God is with us no matter what. Now, you might not feel God's presence, but here's the thing about feelings. Your feelings, as it relates to God's word, as it relates to God's promises, your feelings are irrelevant. Your feelings do not disqualify God's promise. And that's what happened with Paul. Paul is discouraged. God speaks, says, I'm with you. Keep teaching. Keep going. He's like a, God's like acting like a coach. And Paul's Emotions begin to change. Isn't that amazing? God's word can even affect our emotions. Well, Paul eventually makes his way to Antioch. And then Paul and company leave on their third missionary journey at the end of chapter 18, which is basically the exact same kind of route as the second missionary journey. It's about 300 miles, a little over three years. Notice that Paul spends the bulk of his time in one city, in one city alone. It's the city of Ephesus. That's where we're going to pick it up. So go with me to Acts chapter 19. We'll start in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the island country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. 
And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came to them, and they believed, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannius. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched the skin, his skin, were carried away to the sick and their their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to evoke the name of the Lord over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them. Jesus I know. Paul, I recognize. Who are you? I was meant to be funny. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jew and Greeks. And fear fell upon them, and in the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believing came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 5,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. We'll stop there. So Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. I've, I've been to Ephesus. It's amazing. And it was a very big city about, um, during this time, about uh, a half a million people and residents. And it was a modern city, right? I mean, they're still ex- uh, excavating it, but they, they, they had like a modern sewer system. It, it's just nuts. But at the sort of heart of Ephesus culture was the Temple of Artemis. We're going to see that come up in a moment. So Paul spends about um, a couple years in Ephesus. But when he first arrives, he arrives and he meets some of these disciples, and these are disciples of John the Baptist. And so Paul just asks, okay, so, so have you received the Holy Spirit? And they're like, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're, what you're speaking about. We're John's disciples. He baptized us in a baptism of repentance. And Paul says, oh, you've missed it. You've missed it. And so he then proclaims, verse 4, the gospel. They believe. The Spirit descends on them. They speak in tongues and prophesy. Now, we've seen this before. This is unique in redemptive history. We've seen this before. We saw this with Philip, with the Samaritans. We saw this with Peter and Cornelius. And what this is, is there, there are moments in redemptive history that when the Spirit is poured out, it manifests in these extraordinary ways. And so here we see this sort of visual manifestation that God was including some people that were historically excluded. And that's what Luke wants us to see here. Luke wants us to realize 
as it relates to these disciples, that repentance alone cannot save you. Repentance is necessary, but repentance is not sufficient. Repentance is turning away from your sin, but even that good thing, that necessary thing, is insufficient. All they had done is turned away from their sin, right? They had said, no, we're not going to, we're going to live this certain way. We're going to do some behavior modification. But even behavior modification, even living a good moral life is not sufficient to save. And so Paul says, no, you need repentance and belief. You need to turn away from your sin and turn towards Jesus Christ. That is the content of the gospel. I mean, we hear this all the time, right? Um, people come to church or they go to sort of any type of religion because they, they want to become better people. And I sort of suppose that there are worse reasons to come to church. And yet that's not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not about making bad people better people. Christianity is not about making moral people or immoral people moral people or more moral people. It's actually about making dead people alive. It's about a death. Christianity at its heart is a death and resurrection story. It's about believing in God, the God-man Jesus Christ, and in his death and resurrection, and thereby being united to that Savior who died and rose so that you too can have newness of life. That's the gospel. That's the content of this gospel that God raises up men and women into newness of life as they turn from their sin and turn towards Jesus Christ and believe that he is who he says he is and did what he said he did and accomplished what he set out to accomplish. And so we see that, that, that even here, Paul brings into the fold some moralistic men who had a part, they, they were God-fears, but they, they didn't yet understood that Nate needed to turn to Jesus. These were extraordinary times, right? We see part of that then starting in verse 11. People were then taking, verse 11, parts of Paul's clothes or or just material and clothing that touched Paul, and they were using that in order to heal others. Now, we need to be careful Because when we read, especially narrative, there are things that are descriptive and things that are prescriptive, right? Things that are described and then things that are not just described, but things that are prescriptive, meaning that we need to do them as well, like sort of commands. Look, this is superstition. We're not called to do these sorts of things. But I think what this is, is a description of and an example of God's sheer grace. Just think about all of us um, early in on your Christian walk. Just think about how much zeal you had, how much passion you had for Jesus, and yet mm, questionable theological framework. And so I think this is here just God meeting the Ephesian church where they're at, accommodating their ill-formed, their sort of malnourished theology, and just being really gracious to them. But, but, but it's not just Christians who are doing this. Well, 
just like anything, if, if you can make money doing something or if you can get status or popularity doing something, you know, we're going to sort of, um, you know, capitalize on it. And so here we have some sons of a Jewish high priest who start seeing, you know, their, their, li- their, their lights go off and they're like, oh, I've got, I got a great idea, right? Like it works for Paul and his disciples. Let's do it too. And so they use Jesus as a sort of like hocus pocus, abracadabra. And they start trying to exercise demons. And yet we see there, verse, uh, we see there in verse 14 that, that, and then 15 that as they do this, an evil spirit answers them like, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Like you don't even know what you're doing. And so then the spirit like overwhelms these seven sons. Now, now, we don't often think about magic. Or maybe we do, but we're just like, oh, that's all pretend, and we do so when we're like watching a fantasy movie. Or, or we think of like, oh, pe- pe- there are those superstitious nations or cultures, but that's not us. But, but what they were doing and what was prevalent in uh, Ephesus, and you even see this with scrolls and various things that they're going to kind of burn later, is that they really believed that techniques could accomplish some supernatural ends. That's basically what magic is. Magic is the use of technique in order to accomplish a supernatural end. And we might sit on our sort of high horse and say, we're not magical in the traditional sense, but I think we have magical thinking all over the place. I mean, when we want control or when we're feeling not in control, what do we do? We look for a technique or a tool that will give us control so that we can accomplish whatever we want to accomplish. So our marriages are are struggling. So we say, I just need the right communication technique, and then I'll have my best marriage right now. Parents, in, in the desperate moments when you're like my Kids are crazy. They're driving me nuts. Don't you just look for that book, that technique that will solve all of your parenting problems? Or grandparents. Don't you just want your grandkids to just pray the prayer, walk down the aisle, repeat after me, and then they'll be safe, and I know they'll for sure go to heaven. I've I've even seen this in purity culture, in evangelical churches, When we just say, if you are chaste, if you're sexually pure, you can guarantee the greatest sex life when you get married. It's just hocus pocus. Being chaste is a good thing, a glorious thing. It's it's wonderful to do, but it's just hocus pocus. It's magic. It may happen, it may not happen, but one is not necessarily connected to the other. It's just magical thinking. It's saying, I want to use a tool or a technique in order to accomplish a supernatural end. And that's what was going on here. But here we see when Christ is preached and people begin to to, to, to just worship Jesus, we see that that it changes their sort of magical practices and thinking. It changes people. We see that in verse 18. 
Right? They, they take their, their, their scrolls, which you would spend, spend a lot of money buying these scrolls that promised that if you had these magic words, that, that there would be blessings. And, right, and you'd have uh, fertile lands, and you'd have lots of children, and they, they really believed this, and you'd spend a lot of money in these sort of superstitious things, but they weren't superstitious there. They, they were really a big deal. The economy revolved around these sorts of things. And yet they took them and they burned them. 50,000 pieces of silver worth. I mean, that's a lot of money. And that's what these Christians were doing. Now, my guess is that if you went to any of our houses, we wouldn't have like magic scrolls or, or of that sort in order to burn. But my guess is that we have magical thinking that we need to burn to the ground. The sorts of uh, Christianese incantations. We think if we just have that quiet time, then nothing bad will go throughout the day. If I just follow this plan, then my kids will for sure follow Jesus all their days. There's lots of magical thinking going on there. And I understand because it's fearful. It's, it, it, it's, it comes from our, our, our greatest fears that we just think, oh, I just want something practical to do. Just tell me something practical. Give me a tool or technique that can guarantee a certain outcome. And yet, so often, that's not how this world works. And so I think some of our thinking, our sort of Christian superstitions, they too, like in Ephesus, need to be burned. But, but this is not the only power that changes. It's not just our sort of magical thinking that changes. It's actually our idolatry that changes too. Look at verse 21. We'll read 21 to the end of chapter 19. Now, after these events, Paul revolved, uh, resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must go see Rome. And having seen into Macedonia two of his helpers after, and sorry, and after sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance occur, um, disturbance concerning the way, that is, Christians, the church in Ephesus. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the worksmen in silver trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great uh, many people, saying that gods made by the hands are not gods, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed, uh, deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were, went around crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging out with them uh, Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let them. And even some of the uh, Asiarchs who were friends of this sent him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. 
Now some cried out things, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know what they were, had come together to do. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who was a Jew, to be put forward. And Alexander, uh, motioning with his hands, warned to make a defense to the crowd. But, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for among two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We'll stop there. Well, it gets sort of dicey in Ephesus. At the center, like I said earlier, of Ephesus culture was this temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. And it was a temple in worship of the goddess Artemis, the goddess of the hunt. And the local economy, when you think about it, it revolved around this, the the selling of idols. And so you had uh, this man named Demetrius. Well, he begins to realize that his, his bottom line, he's not making as much money as he used to. People are not buying all these little trinkets as they're making their pilgrimage or, or as you know, their, their trinket fell apart and so they needed a new one. They're not buying these little Artemis statues anymore. And so he, and then he gets all his friends together because he's like, hey, this is going to affect all of us, right? And so he gets them all together and say, he gets the sort of trade guild together and says, do you, do you realize what this means? This message that Paul is preaching, it's not just, oh, that there's another God. No, no, no. This is an attack on our livelihood. This is an attack on the Ephesian culture and economy. This is an attack on our money. And so they sort of whip up a riot, a crowd. They all surround them and they're like, you know, screaming out as, as sort of mobs do, you know, the same thing over and over again, Right? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, we've talked about idolatry in this church relatively consistently. I mean, idolatry is basically taking any good thing and making it an ultimate thing. It could be anything. Here in Ephesus, it was the goddess Artemis. But it could be any good thing. And you make it an ultimate thing and it becomes an idol. But one thing you might not realize is that idols and money are always connected. Idols and money always go together. Whatever your idol is, that idol in your life will demand payment. So, so, so for instance, if, if your idol is beauty that promises status, I mean, that's expensive, right? Clothing, personal trainer, Botox, You just go on, right? Specialty foods that arrive at your doorstep. So do you just eat the exact right nutritional, all organic, vegan, kale, paleo diet, whatever? It's expensive. Or what about the idol of success? Well, you need a fancy college degree. Then you need a fancy MBA. Then you need to network with all the right people. You need to spend money in order to make money, right? You need a big home, all the trinkets and all the toys. And once you do that, then you'll have status. And then you'll be able to be happy. It's exhausting. And it costs you. Take any idol that's worshipped in our culture, and there is a financial cost attached to it. And that's what's going on in Ephesus. And not only that, we, we don't often think about this, but, but when it comes to idolatry, it's not just that, you know, we have these idols and that there's a financial attachment to them, but, but every idol has a temple. We just don't call them temples. 
I mean, what is a mall? Other than a temple, possibly, for beauty. I mean, what is Seahawks Stadium other than a temple for entertainment and pleasure of sports? I mean, just think about Apple, all right? iPhone, Idol, just, just saying, right? Just think about if you've ever been to the Apple store, does not it look like a temple? And so here we have these men and women who are encountered by the the gospel going forth, and it's affecting the economy. I mean, so often we think about, oh, no, when God blesses a nation or a culture, financial blessing comes. But here it's the reverse. As the Christian church is faithful, the economy suffers. And yet I just wonder that as it relates to Christians here in Pierce County, because whenever you affect and damage an economy, people get angry. And people got angry in Ephesus. And I wonder, as it relates to Pierce County, would they ever get angry at the spending habits of Christians here? Or, or as it relates to the evangelicals in Pierce County, because as I look last, it's about anywhere from, depending on how you count, 15 to 30 percent, is the reason why Pierce County is just fine with us is that our spending habits look just like everyone else's spending habits. And yet what we hear, see here is that as the gospel takes root in their heart, it begins to change people and they begin to do things differently. It, it pushes back their idolatry and also how they worship, what they worship. So, so if you want the quickest way, as Randy Alcorn tells us in his book on money, the, the quickest way to know your idols is just look at your checkbook, right? Worship and money always go together. And yet... We know this, that as Christians think through various things, as they think through engaging financially in various aspects of life, we know that we have the potential to cause real damage. I think that's why the broader culture always knows that the Christian church is dangerous. Because we so often swim culturally and economically upstream. But this is the power of the gospel to change, right? God's word goes out through sacrificial servants and it begins changing hearts and minds and it also begins to change people and their spending habits, people and how they are worshiping. Because all idolatry is, you want to know how you fight idolatry? It's simply this. You don't just stop worshiping one idol, you just replace the idol, right? You worship Jesus. Well, just as quickly as, you know, Paul's in Ephesus, he's gone, right? That's what happens in chapter 20. Paul, Paul, Paul's gone. We, we read of he goes to Macedonia and Greece. Then, then, he's, then he's teaching, and we have this story about Eutychus. And, he, you know, Paul is preaching. Eutychus is, you know, a little bit sleepy, and so he falls down. And the lesson, obviously, is that if you fall asleep at church, you could die. That's bad. Bad Bible study, but, right? So, so we get this story. Paul raises him from the dead. And then Paul is going. He eventually makes his way to Miletus. And then we land um, in chapter 20, verse 17, which is the last section we're going to read and look at. 
Paul brings the Ephesian elders, right? He's going to Jerusalem, and he wants to bring them to commission them. Verse 17, now, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said these words, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with the tears and with trials and ha- that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that, imprison, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life. Here's, here's Paul's mission statement. But I do not account my life of any value nor precious as myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now I behold that, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he ordained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples among them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, give you an inheritance among all those who testify, who are sanctified. I covet no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered in my to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things I show, I, I have shown that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember that the words of Jesus, how he himself said, is better to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful for most of all because of the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanying him to his ship. So Paul's going to Jerusalem beginning in chapter 21. He makes this clear. But before that, he brings all the Ephesian elders together and he gives a sort of pep talk. He he gives a sort of uh, army commissioning. Uh, this past week, it was my anniversary, and uh, Lisa and I got away, and I got to read a World War II um, history book. And I was reading about this World War II history book about bombers, and one of the greatest Air Force generals of World War II was a man named Curtis LeMay. And they were about to go on this bombing campaign over Germany, and he brought all of the kind of pilots together, all those who were going to go on the plane, and he said, he, he was giving a pep talk, and he saw that one particular man was just terrified. And he looked him straight in the face and said, son, you're probably going to die tonight. The quicker you come to grips with that, the better. And then he just moved on. All right, Paul's better at giving a pep talk than Curtis <laughs> LeMay. But that's what Paul does, right? He gives this amazing pep talk to the elders in verses 18 through 27. And he, and he explains just his, his commitment to the church. He explains that his conscience is clear, that he taught them day and night, that he kept pointing them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You just sense Paul's love for this church, his love for the elders there in Ephesus. 
And as I read this, church, this is in some ways a job description of what you should be looking for in elders. This is what you should be looking for in elders. This is the standard of eldership. An elder is someone who does not shrink back from continually preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, singing the gospel with you all. An elder is someone who, who weeps with you, who prays for you, who walks with you. An elder, as we see here, is someone who actually does not shrink back from saying hard things to you. I, I think in many ways this is the very reason why we don't like membership or it's kind of scary because we know it's like sort of like parenting, right? Right? A good parent is someone who speaks truth to their kids, and yet, why do kids not like parents sometimes? Because parents speak truth to their kids, right? Same thing goes for the church. And yet an elder should be someone who is not so terrified by the fear of man that they don't say hard things. As Paul said multiple times, I continually admonished, which is another word for I disciplined. I, I pointed out sin, and I pointed them again to the gospel of grace time and time again. I built them up in grace That's what we should be looking for. Elders who walk with you and pray for you and point you again and again to your need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which doesn't mean that elders are sinless. Just ask my wife. Ask my kids. No, 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 no. But it does mean that elders are men who have a faith that's contagious, a, a faith that you want, a, a faith that you want to emulate. They, they have a prayer life that you know that they're praying for you and rooting for you. You want to learn from them. And we all need this. You see, it's not just that there are elders who are shepherds, but, but, but all Christians, even elders, are sheep too. I mean, I don't know how many times as, as we're at an elders' meetings and I'm sharing my life where elders begin to shepherd me. We all need to be shepherd. And that's the point here. That's the, the point and purpose of membership. Right? It's not just that we're reconciled to God and then reconciled to each other, but then God ordains such a, 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 a church that he would then give to the church and raise up men to faithfully shepherd for our spiritual good. And notice that, that, that Paul, as he calls these, this church together, he wants, as he's leaving, I mean, Asia is falling apart, right? Persecution's on the rise, you know, the, the economy is sort of falling apart. I mean, there's a lot that Paul could say. And what does he say? He just says, hey, guys, be faithful. He, he says, hey, hey, hey elders, uh, watch out. Be on guard. And he doesn't say, okay, be on guard. Did you notice this? He says, be on guard for wolves, be on guard for people t- teaching twisted things. He didn't say, look out for all of the bad in the culture. He Paul's primary concern is for the the drama and for the conflict that can happen from within. The the, the biggest and most terrifying and the most damaging things that can happen to a church is not the things that happen outside of the gates of the church. It's actually the things that happen inside of the church. Just read Paul's letters. Read Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It's, it's the conflict within the, within the church that was most devastating to the faithfulness and health of the local church. Well, the local church, Paul commends them, encourages them. He wants them to be faithful because Paul knows that that is the way to change the world. 
Now, this is, this is going to be sound, this is going to sound like I'm tooting my own horn, right? This is a bit self-serving. But if you look at plan A, plan A is the local church. That is how God is advancing his kingdom. But by, 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 by declaring and witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ, raising up men and women, gathering them together because they're not just reconciled to God, but then reconciled together, and then planting them in loca- localities that they may make disciples and live on mission together in every place that they go. That is the plan. That is how God is advancing the kingdom. That is how God is changing the world, which sometimes doesn't look like much. But it is the most beautiful sight ever. I'm just going to leave because I think it's one of the most beautiful, heart-wrenching verses in the book of Acts. And that is when Paul leaves Ephesus. These brothers in gospel ministry who left. Right? It's hard to say goodbye to people as they go on mission, as they go overseas. It's hard because our hearts are not just intertwined in worship of Jesus. They're intertwined in our togetherness in the gospel. And so we see here that God's changing people. Verse 36, let me read these words again and we'll pray. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he spoke that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Lord, we want to be a church like that, who our hearts are so intertwined with one another on, on our worship of you and on, on our mission to make disciples, Lord. We also want to be a church that, that keeps sending out men and women to, to, to advance your gospel through the preaching of your word. Lord, we pray, Lord, for, for, for our workers, those men and women who are doing that. May this be an exceedingly fruitful season in their ministry, Lord. And Lord, we do pray that you would give us a deeper trust and an understanding that you are changing the world through your word as we sacrificially keep preaching and proclaiming and persuading the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.